0: Welcome to the Real Life Theology Podcast. Thank you for joining us again today. If it's your first time or your hundredth time, we're just really excited that you've decided to tune in and check out this great content from Renew.org. In this episode, Jay Austin and Daniel McCoy discuss how to develop a family discipleship culture. Jay and Daniel discuss how important discipling your kids is in today's culture that is becoming more difficult to keep kids from drifting away from the faith. Daniel discusses how kids are being conditioned to embrace an alternative worldview based off of intersectional feminism. They dive deep in this podcast into what it looks like to really develop a great disciple-making culture starting in your family. So in your ministry, in your day-to-day life, in your family life, we hope that this podcast gives you great tools to be able to start doing this and helps you to follow Jesus more clearly today.
1: Hey, thank you all for coming this afternoon. I know it's busy, has been busy. Uh, I'm humbled that we have this time together and that uh, God would allow us to talk about the most important thing that's going on uh, in the church. And I believe that what he is calling us to really focus our attention on If I could get uh, every senior, your pastor in every church together, uh, I would simply look at them in the eyes and say, there is no greater focus that you can have than family discipleship. Uh, I am am a man who has been in the faith for many, many, many years. And I'll just be honest. Uh, I can do another Bible study. I can continue to do more Bible study. But I really want to know, are we passing Jesus on to the next generation? And so we've got to have that as a passion of our heart. If I cry during this time, sorry, that's just me. I can't help it. Uh, the, the calling that we have and the people that in this room have on their lives is to empower parents to do really great discipleship. And the truth of the matter is we are two or three generations away from what that really looks like. You know, we have some tools at our disposal. So what I want you to know is that what I'm going to talk about today is descriptive, not prescriptive. So that means I'm going to describe to you some things that are working, what I've seen work, what works for us, but it's not intended to be something you go back and do exactly the same way or expect to do because you may be doing some things better than we are and we want to hear from you along the way too. And so we are in this together. We believe this is a calling that God has on this generation. I believe we are a Joshua generation. I believe we are going to see children who are going to rise up And they are not going to defile themselves. They are not going to fall into the traps and the schemes of the devil. And we're going to see them rise up and they're going to lead the people forward. I believe we're responsible to make sure that they are prepared for that. And so as we get into this, I would say the uh, title um, that makes sense. uh, I've got to turn this on. It didn't flow. The title that I would like for you to hear from me is Family Discipleship Culture. Once we develop a culture, then it becomes natural for a thing to happen. So often, those of us who have been in church work for years and years and years, we've created these worlds where we do Bible studies, we do vacation Bible school, we do all these really fun things, but the culture is around attraction rather than discipleship. And so we're going into a major shift where we still do those things to support families, Vacation Bible School, the Bible studies at church, all those things. But the focus is helping families create a culture where they can raise those children up to have a 360 degree around them, rather than church being another option on their list of things to do with dance, with music, with school. It becomes the culture that they swim in. And so we're going to talk to you uh, a little bit uh, about that, but... Uh, Daniel McCoy is uh, the author of Real Life Theology Conversations, uh, co-author, along with Jason Hauser and Nicole Stein. And I saw Nicole come in right back here. It's Nicole. Thank you for uh, coming in and being with us. She just had a baby. Yeah, she she wrote this through her pregnancy, and it was awesome to watch. We're going to share with you a little bit more about this book, It Is Not a Programme. It helps develop a culture for families, specifically for children, between the ages of 9 and 12, and we'll talk more about that. And Daniel's going to come up and lay some groundwork for us in just a minute. That's his family, and this is my family. You may see my son running around him. He's responsible for the podcasts. And uh, we, we have been blessed to see uh, them trust and follow Jesus uh, with their whole lives. They're now 21 and uh, 23 years old. So we want to share some of that experience with you. My wife just did Anne of Green Gables last night. It's the first time I've been away from one of the plays that she did. She's a director at a school and just love her. She's not happy with me, but God bless us all. We're glad to be with you. All right, Daniel, would you come up? I'm going to give you this remote. Let's give it up for Daniel as he comes forward and begins to lay the premise for family discipleship.
2: Hey, good to see you all. Um, so I'm the uh, editor for Renew.org, that's kind of what I do, it's my full-time gig, and um, I'd like to talk about kind of a cultural, here's where we're at, kind of a you are here. Uh, before we get, before Jay gets into the descriptive, uh, here's what's working in family discipleship, uh, I'd like to just lay out a real quick, um, kind of a cultural you are here to to hopefully be helpful Uh, so that we can see kind of what our kids are growing up in. I have five kids, and so I'm really thinking hard about this and thinking about the world they're growing up in. And I think the best possible metaphor for what our kids are growing up in is Babylon. Uh, Welcome to Babylon. So I'm going to just quickly tell the story of the uh, exiles, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and then I'm going to kind of lay alongside that uh, kind of where we are as a culture so, the Babylonians didn't call them Hanani, Mishael, Azariah. And the Babylonians called them what? Shadrach, Meshach, yeah, you got it. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so, taking my cue from Daniel chapter three, we're going to kind of do a cultural here's where we're at. Uh, number one, when people are tempted to leave the faith, sometimes it's called, you know, deconstructing or deconverting or whatever. But when people are tempted to leave the faith, there's always, number one, A gold statue. Now, for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the gold statue was roughly 90 feet by 9 feet, and Babylon was assimilating peoples from the Great Sea to the Persian Gulf into its empire, and it was uniting them at the deepest possible level the level of worship. And uh, when the music plays, you either bow or you burn. And so I, Mishael, and Azariah, they grew up learning the Hebrew Bible. They learned you're not supposed to bow to idols. But now that Babylon has conquered Judea, they're now living in exile. Okay, They've now been trained in the Babylonian literature and language. They've been given Babylonian names. And like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, our kids, many of our kids, you know, they're growing up learning the Bible. That's our world. And then it gets attacked but it's not always Babylonians conquering our city and offering us a gold statue to worship. Sometimes it's a philosophy that's challenging our faith and uh, and, and offering us a new worldview. Hannah and I, Mishael, and Azariah were, were conditioned to move from a worldview centered on God to a worldview centered on Babylon. What about our kids? Our kids are being conditioned to move in the, in this Western culture to, to move from a worldview centered on God To a worldview centered on oppressed people. A worldview in which what's true and what's good and what's just are rooted not in the teachings of Scripture, but in the lived experiences of oppressed people. Now uh, the worldview I'm going to describe here goes by a few different names, but I'm going to be uh, uh, calling it intersectional feminism. I've been a student of intersectional feminism since 2016 uh, when I, I was reading the literature and I realized, my goodness, a tsunami is coming and it's totally here. And a, just a couple of disclaimers: number one, I, I please hear me; I'm not trying to say that intersectional feminism is the only gold statue that is attracting people away from historic Christianity. Okay, there are many gold statues. We could talk about nationalism. You know, we could talk about Buddhism or, or any number of other worldviews or just even just secularism. Um, and number two, I'm not going to try to say that there are no insights to be learned from intersectional feminism in the literature. There are, some, there are definitely insights you can learn from listening to intersectional feminists, but I'm going to be describing intersectional feminism as a worldview. Okay? And as a worldview, I'm convinced it directly challenges many of the claims of historic Christianity. Okay? So when people are tempted to leave the faith, there's always a gold statue. And I'd like to describe a very shiny gold statue called intersectional feminism. Okay if you want to understand the modern Western world, where we're at right now, you need to understand intersectional feminism. It starts by recognizing that, <clears throat> that there are certain groups in society that have privilege and power and according to intersectional feminism, uh, people who are white, Heterosexual, cisgender, which means that they're not transgender, cisgender, and Christian, they have enjoyed unearned privileges in Western culture. Society has been structured to prioritize these groups' interests and to marginalize the interests of oppressed people. As a result, these people enjoy power over others, and their decisions and their beliefs are motivated by maintaining that power. And so even when it's cloaked in the guise of well I'm just trying to speak the truth, well they're really just trying to maintain power if they're part of that one of those groups. Um, so according to intersectional feminism, anybody with power and privilege in Western civilization, we need to view them with a lot of cynicism. And since this is this is big, since Christianity helped to frame Western civilization, we need to view Christianity with deep, cynicism. So Christian claims of what is true and false, uh, is, it's just meant to maintain Christian power and to marginalize the opposition. And if a Christian claims, well, this is right and this is wrong, it's just a means of the Christians trying to maintain their cultural power. And when we Christians are told, well, you're just trying to, you're just power hungry, you're trying to maintain, you're obsessed with power, uh, you know, and we overreact and we get angry and red-faced, It just simply reinforces the narrative. Yep, they just care about power. Uh, So according to intersectional feminism, do you want to know what's right and wrong, true and false, just and unjust? You will find these answers in the... They'll be grounded in the lived experience of oppressed people. Okay, now how does that relate to us and to our kids, the kids that we're trying to disciple? Well, if I'm a Christian, or let's say if my kid is a Christian and starts to embrace intersectional feminism. What must change? Eventually, they've got to stop caring what the Bible says about what's male and female. And they've got to start asking what do oppressed people say about what's male and female? Specifically, what do trans people say about what makes male and female? We've got to stop asking what does the Bible say about marriage and sexuality? We've got to start asking what do oppressed people say about marriage and sexuality? Specifically, what do homosexuals and bisexuals say about marriage and sexuality? We got to stop caring so much about what the Bible says about who should be forgiven, and we got to ask, what do oppressed people say about who should you know who deserves to be forgiven? This this form of kind of leaving the historic faith is about taking claims of what's true and good out of the hands of the God of the Bible and rooting those beliefs in the lived experiences of oppressed people. Okay, so when tempted to leave the faith, and our kids will be tempted to leave the faith. Number one, there's always a gold statue. And for many, many people in, in this culture, that gold statue is a worldview called intersectional feminism. Number two, when tempted to leave the faith, there's always a good reason. Now, why should Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah bow? They didn't want to... Burn right. That was Bauer. Burn right. It's very very simple. Um, why deconstruct a God-centered worldview and reconstruct it into a worldview based in the lived experiences of oppressed people? Three good reasons why it seems like the right thing to do. Okay, so it's go, it goes like this. Uh, number one, first reason: simply you want to. Um, in this culture. It feels really good to be able to say, look, marry whomever you love. Women can do whatever they want with their bodies, their babies. Trans women are women. Love is love. It feels good to be on the side of the oppressed at every level. Okay, that's the first reason. Second reason, I. Uh, you you have to. You kind of have to. Try getting a good corporate job or being in the good graces of your university professor or make it in the recording industry if you don't go along with full affirmation of LGBTQ views of sexuality and gender. Okay, You kind of have to. If you can make it through the first and the second, that's great, but there's a third. Your kids can make it through the first and second, and they're like, you know what? I know that there's a lot of tempting stuff out there. I'm still going to follow Jesus. And they say, you know what? Even if there's pressure, even if there's persecution, I'm still going to follow Jesus. Watch out, though, because there's a third reason. It goes like this. You ought to. It's the moral way. It's the path of justice. Okay? Now, these three reasons... In the, um, you know, as far as reasons why we would want to deconstruct a Christian worldview and and replace it with another worldview, these really correspond well with three puppets in the book of Revelation. Uh, The dragon wields these three puppets, and you have the harlot, whose thing is seduction. Uh, What is her message? You want to follow the dragon. Uh, Then you've got the beast out of the sea, uh, who threatens them with persecution. What's his message? You you have to follow the dragon. And then you have the beast out of the earth. Now, the beast out of the earth, it's easy to forget him, but here's what's fascinating about him. He looks like a lamb, uh, but speaks with the voice of a dragon. But he does miracles. He looks like a lamb. He's, he looks like Jesus, but he's really puppet of the dragon. And his message is what? You ought to. That's the one that'll get you. And you know what these three reasons mean, right? They mean intense pressure for your kids to, to change their beliefs uh, to fit with the culture. Or if you're a church leader, intense pressure to change your church's beliefs or to at least soften your church's beliefs uh, or, or, or at least soften your church's tone. So when tempted to leave the faith, as our kids will be tempted to leave the faith, there's always a gold statue. Number two, when tempted to leave the faith, there's always a good reason. You want to, you have to, and you ought to. And then number three, when tempted to leave the faith, there's always a game changer. Now, if you remember the story of Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, what was the game changer? When they said to the king, look, throw us in the furnace, God can deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we're going to be fine. Somehow they had this deep conviction that they follow Jesus, they're going to be all right. And to kind of... uh, describe how to develop this kind of conviction in our kids. I'm going to turn it back over to Jay, and we're going to be talking, again, some of the, describing some of the ways that we really can raise kids that are resilient.
1: Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Did you give him a round of applause? It just helps to <clears throat> solidify. This, this, these things are true. This is what we are focused on. So um, one of the things that we know is parents are responsible for their children's discipleship not the church. This is something that the church has said. It's been a conflict that's been going on. Uh, parents say, no, wait a second. I don't know how to disciple my kids. And the church says, but that's your job, right? And so it's very similar to someone who says, my car just broke down and somebody standing on the side and saying, well, it's your job to fix it. Well, I don't know about you, but if my engine blew up today, I could not fix it. Anybody else? I don't have the tools. I don't have the experience. My mom or dad did not train me. To fix cars. And so we're walking into a generation that we can say to parents, you're responsible for the discipleship of your children. They look at you going, okay, what does that mean? I have no clue what you mean. And so we have these statistics that are out that said that churches are saying it's the role of the parent and the parent's going, it's the role of the church. The truth of the matter is the way God set it up (laughs) starts in the home and he established the church. And so it's a one-two punch. And I believe that's a good way to knock the devil off of his seat. And so we need to partner with parents rather than put them in a position where it says, well, that's your job. It's where they get to the point that they're asking the question, well, how do I do it? Because only uh, 10% of Protestant churches provide parenting guides and resources for their parents, only 10%. So I gave you a survey as you sat down there to kind of look and say, is our church at a cultural place where we're really preparing our families? And maybe you... Scored five on all of those. Maybe you scored one on all of those. It's just a way for you to kind of evaluate in each one of those areas. How are we doing in helping our parents and creating a discipleship, uh, family discipleship culture? So here's what we uh, see uh, is that parents are thrown into a situation right now where they feel incredible guilt and fear. Do you sense that yourself? I feel like I'm failing. I don't know if we're going to be able to survive it. There are so many things coming at our kids right now. Fear, 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 fear. Anybody? It's really happening. There's things to fear. And then when something goes wrong, parents start feeling that guilt, especially moms, right? We feel guilt. That's the reason that uh, children don't get, 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 get kicked out of the house at the age of 10, is moms feel guilty that they must have done something wrong, Right? Now, this is the book we talked about, Real Life Theology Conversations. This is 52 conversations that parents have with their children, is specifically targeting children between the ages of 9 and 12 and their parents and their older siblings if they haven't gone through it. It is not a program. It is a way of giving theology, solid theology, to children at a very pivotal time that they're moving from concave Creek thinking to abstract thinking, letting them develop their own understanding of theology, and then doing something with it. It's a one-year thing. If you just want to hear more about it, be a part of that, would you uh, click on that QR code, not right now, but sometime over the next hour, and uh, let us know because we're starting a beta group in August where we are going to have uh, families all across the United States going through this. We've already done one beta group, and it is phenomenal what we're seeing. Here's the big thing. It is a tool that allows parents to be discipled while they're discipling their kids. woo <laughs> It's awesome. Okay, we're going to talk more about that. Just want to keep moving forward. I am going to throw a lot at you. Here it is. This is the foundation. The Jewish people understood when they were in the wilderness what it meant to disciple their children and make sure that they did. They did the Shema. Every single morning, they got up and prayed the Shema. Before they went to bed, they prayed the Shema. People knew the Shema. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? And he said the Shema. But he broke it down to, love the Lord your God with all your heart. So, and... Strength. And the second thing is... Yeah, and so Jesus knew the Shema. He knew the right answer when he was asking. He went right back to it because this is something that he would know. Don't you wish it was this simple for us today to disciple our kids? Listen to this. Hero O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That means you don't have any of the idols set up. You don't have any of the gold stuff that is coming at them right now. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be written on your Heart, the way you feel about life, the worldview that you have. And it goes on to say, impress them, impress them, put them on your children. Make sure they're sticking to them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Put it there. Make sure that they're doing it with their head, their heart, and their hands, the things that they do. Impress them on their children. Talk about them when? While you're sitting down at home, when you're walking along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up, tie them as symbols on their hands and bind them on their foreheads. Write them on the forepost of your of your house and on your gate. Make it where your kids are coming in contact with the culture of loving God everywhere they turn. That's what that says, okay? And so we want to help parents understand what that means with Jesus, as He is the fulfillment of everything that is the Old Testament. And so we take this uh, the, the uh, uh, Deuteronomy passage and we look at what does it mean to create a family discipleship culture where it becomes natural to think, to feel, and to act like Jesus. If we start with our children very, very young and we get them into the process of doing Christianity rather than just live, thinking about Christianity, then we have empowered them to be like Christ. Little Christ or better known as, Christians. And so we get to uh, make that a hallmark rather than come to this event, come to that event, come to the church and be a part of this attractional thing at the church. Instead, we want to partner with you parents in helping your children develop a holistic understanding so that when the culture begins to cave in on them, their worldview is set in such a way that they know how to think, how to feel, and how to act like Jesus. All right, so we're looking at a family discipleship vision. And this is what I would say to you. If I were to come into your church and talk about a family discipleship vision, it is from birth, the time a child is born, and actually it starts before then, the preparation uh, for the family before then, all the way to age 24. At the age of 24, the uh, the psychology behind it tells us that the human brain has gotten to the point that it's fully developed. I believe that parents should have a vision for their children up until age 24. And at 24, we hand over to our children and say, we've done all we know to do. Go, you do it. And so it's disciplers making disciples to disciple. And so at the age of 24, they're prepared. They've seen it. They love it. And the church has supported it. Trust me, this takes intentionality. It will not happen if we just look for the next program to come along or we look for the next opportunity to pull them in. We've got to say we want to join with families and we want to be serious about it. Listen, the Shema was serious. Get up in the morning, do it in the afternoon, do it in the evening, and let's do it again year after year after year. Read the Torah, read, read the Ketavim, read the, read the Naveen, get into it. And we need to help families get into that where it's not this mystery out there of how, we, how do we disciple our kids? And so we want to kind of give you some low-hanging fruit, and I am about to give you a fire hose that this could be a two-day conference. I recognize that. Here's what we know about kids today. If you put a journey together for them at birth, the parents are making a commitment that they are going to disciple their children, that they're going to do everything they can to help them trust and follow Jesus. We all know that there is a time that every single child has to make that decision for themselves. But those parents walk the line and say, we are going to step forward at age five because that's a transition time for children of them becoming more around other children and hearing different worldviews. So we're going to pour into them specifically during that time, and we're going to put Ebenezer's in their life. If you're looking for a clear understanding of what I'm talking about and how that's lived out. This book I put together with my wife. It's called Your Child's Journey, and it takes them all the way from birth all the way to age 24 along these milestone Ebenezer times. If you're interested, I can get these to you at author's copy. I just want to get them in people's hands. Again, descriptive, not prescriptive. But I want to point out some things to you at the age of seven. Children right now are coming in contact with most of what Daniel was talking about the systems that are around them. And so we need to, again, surround them at that point so that they're hearing what God thinks about them rather than what the world is telling them to do. Now at age 12, we have an off-ramp for children. This is the time that many children are going to say to their parents, I don't want to go to church, my friends are at school, my friends aren't at uh, at church, I want to go and do baseball. They're testing their parents to see if they're serious about the worldview that they're laying out. And many parents will say, I want to please my kids and I want to make them happy. We need to help parents understand the goal is not to make them happy. Because if we help them understand that there are boundaries in place, that our children are going to be faithful to come to church until they're 18 years of age, and after that, you can do whatever you want to. You're an adult, right? You're on your own. But we in our house are going to keep the path. What we find is that kids are a whole lot more happy. Because the boundaries have been put in place and they're not questioning everything. And everything isn't up for grabs. And suddenly church and their foundation and discipleship becomes the important part. I'm hitting this so quickly. At the age of 14 is another time that is called an off-ramp. They, again, are moving from that middle school years into the high school years. They're having a different kind of influence. They they are now going to be the best dancer that ever existed. They're now going to be the star uh, soccer player. They've got to travel. They've got to do all those things. I'm saying that as someone whose son was an All-American football player, another son that played football. I get the tension, but Jesus has to be the thing that is the foundation of their life, not just another option to be involved with. And we just need to help parents grasp that, the beauty of it, the joy of raising your children in a foundation that they can believe in and not something that's just passing here and there like the other things that come and go in their life. At the age of 16, you know they get in a car and you can no longer determine where exactly they went, even though most of you have some kind of tracking device on their phone, right? And then at the age of 18, they're like, you can't tell me what to do. I'm 18, I'm adult, right? If you surrounded them with the right people during those times, you're not telling them what to do anymore. Their friends and the people who are the mentors around them are taking care of that for you. And you're just saying, I love you, but please practice what we've been teaching you all these years. And then at the age of 21, it's a time that our culture, again, Satan is hitting the kids at each one of these places. And 21 is another one that our culture, you know, <laughs> alcohol, partying, going out in a, with friends, meeting people that they didn't know before. And then at the age of 24, it's this huge thing, what am I going to do with my life? These are very key times that we need to help parents develop transitions for their children and surround them in a family discipleship environment. I have just gone through a two-day process that we do with our church with families developing plans. I hope that it's sunk in a little bit. I just want to give you a taste of what it could look like to build a discipleship culture that is very intentional, that helps children through these very uh, pivotal times when Satan could destroy their life. Here's what we know. At the age of 25, they are completely solid in their worldview. They are 100% ready to go into the world and be the adults that they think and feel and do. And so we have to be very intentional every single step along the way, making sure that we're getting them there. And there are tools in place that we can help parents with that. One of the things that I would encourage you, and it's on your seat, is biannual family discipleship summits. We at Harpeth Christian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, do two times a year a family summit. Those summits are between three and four hours long. It's a time that families come together and they put together their plans for their children for the next six months-ish. Because we got summer and we have to figure it all out. So we do those in February and September. Why February and September? September. They have gotten back into school. They are starting to show signs Of what's going to happen that school year right the friends the acquaintances the what i want to do and so it's a time for parents to say what are we going to do for the next six months to keep our kids on course and then we do it again after uh the first of the year so that they can say even through the summer as they're beginning to grow into the next age what is our plan to keep them on track in uh, different areas as they grow this is a three-hour event that focuses on the children's what they're thinking discipleship what they're feeling, what's going on in their worldview, and what they're doing with their hands. We encourage parents to get their children serving Jesus as fast as possible. Because if all they're doing is hearing about Jesus, it's just a whole lot of knowledge. And knowledge without action lacks wisdom. And so we've got to move children to living it out as quickly as possible. And so we find ways for them to serve, parents to go and do mission work with them, take food to the people next door, get the kids involved with being Jesus' people. Not just talking about what it's going to be like when you grow up, right? You get to hold the door when people come in, right? Volunteers are awesome. But we need our children to see what it really means to think like Jesus, to feel like Jesus, and to act like Jesus. And so birth to age 24, we help people develop that vision. And trust me, a mom that has had a baby for three weeks is totally interested in what their child is going to be like at 24 not. (laughs) And so we recognize that, but we want to have a beautiful vision for them that it's not just the next six months. It is something that you want to see your child trust and follow Jesus. And we as a church, we as a group of people, we as individual families want to surround you and make sure that we are being the church and not just an attractional place for you to come. Okay, And so that's the six month goals that we set out. We also encourage families to set up this. What is your Sabbath? How are you going to study God's word? How are you going to memorize God's Word? Seeds, family, ministry, awesome way. Music is the key to learning Scripture memorization for kids. You can learn it uh, through looking at the Scriptures and read them, but most kids are going to get the sound that comes from music, and they're going to learn it. And then, when they're just going through their day, they'll start singing Scripture verses. And the Bible tells us very clearly that the Word of God is the thing that keeps us away from the devil's schemes. Jesus did it, Right? He took scriptures that were in his heart from his childhood and he threw it back at Satan. So we can use that same style with our kids. Let me not say anything too lightly here. Let's get our kids memorizing scripture, giving them a way for them to remember it, getting it to music so it's part of their life. Is building community. Who is their tribe? Who are the people that are also trusting and following Jesus? Making sure that we're praying. And listen, we do a fast with our kids. The way that we do this is that we ask them to uh, do away with the food that they would normally eat on a Wednesday night, to eat beans and rice and uh, pray for the people around the world who are starving. And so it gives them an understanding of a worldview bigger than themselves and what they would normally eat. And then we say, take the money that you would have normally spent on a meal that night and contribute it at the church to one of the programs, whether that's uh, buying sheep for people in Uganda or whatever it is. So it's teaching them generosity. It's teaching them sacrifice. It's teaching them all of those things. So a lot of times we think about fasting. Well, what is that? We need to take that very serious. <laughs> Times that we fast ourselves, but helping our children understand how to center our hearts and our minds to think like Jesus, to feel like Jesus, and to act like Jesus. To protect uh, and prepare uh, some of the things that Daniel was talking about. What are the things that they're going to face? And there are different resources like uh, the conversations book that helps you with that. And then helping your children learn to be generous, to give. Jesus is. One of his biggest hallmark of what he did was compassion. He even said as he looked down upon Jerusalem, he had great compassion upon the people. When he was feeding the 5,000, he had great compassion. And if we can teach compassion, let me just tell you, there's no bigger social justice movement than the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believed in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There is no greater social justice than what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. And our children need to understand that and know how to live that out. All right, I'm not going to go through this. This is a whole, I could spend an hour on this, but just so I say to you this, the first things that our children come in contact with are the lasting things that will become the entire house that's built. And so they're age Categories at three to five, and at, uh, I mean, at birth to three, and three to five, and then uh, from five to eight, and these different nine to 12 that are very key in helping our children think differently and see differently and adopt a cultural Christian worldview. And so you see there, I'm going to point to it again between nine and 12 is a time for them to understand theology for the best that they can understand theology because they're moving from concrete thinking.
0: abstract thinking. By the age of 12 and 13, their whole worldview is solidified. Thanks for joining us again today. What a great discussion from Jay and Daniel. Really hope that you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. I'd just like to remind you, if you want more great content like this, we're rolling it out through pretty much the end of the year this year. So we're going to have all of our track sessions available on the Real Life Theology Podcast for a good while moving forward here. And also, if you want to be a part of it live, we just invite you to go on Renew.org, grab your tickets for the 2024 National Gathering. It's going to be in Indianapolis again. We're really excited about it, and we'd love to see you there.